Well, good morning again. <laughs> it's good to be with you all today and to dig into God's Word together. Uh, we are looking at a, an interesting passage today that has a number of things in it that are a bit of a head-scratcher, but I hope that we will be encouraged and challenged as we work our way through it. And as I was preparing, it, it occurred to me, and it's probably occurred to you many times, that we are rarely more like those ancient ancestors of ours, Adam and Eve, than we are when, when we're passing the buck. I think that is one of the, the most quintessential traits we have inherited from, from Adam and Eve. I know in, in my childhood, people often talked about we lived in the United States of whatever. That just kind of seemed to captive, you know, capture the cultural moment I was growing up in, the United States of whatever. And I think we've grown up and now we're living in uh, the United States of not my problem. Uh, I looked around a little bit and there are a lot of memes as it turns out on the subject. A lot of memes uh, for communicating to people, this is not my problem. And if we've been listening to the culture around us, you see this all over the place. When was the last time we heard a sincere, truthful apology or taking of ownership for just about anything? Are we likely to ever in our lifetime have a straight answer from, for anything from a presidential press secretary, for example? Uh, when do you think we should anticipate a candid and sincere apology from a major CEO for corruption in his or her organization? Uh, should we hold our breath for Hollywood celebrities or the entourages of the cultural elite to deal with issues in a way that's actually going to cost them anything as opposed to have been focus grouped to make sure that it is as minimally damaging to their image as possible? In fact, You've probably been saying there's a major court case playing out in front of the national news recently with well-known cultural icons in it, and they're taking turns hiring and firing PR firms to help manipulate public opinion in the hopes that it will sway the impact of their case. That's the world we live in, non-answer after non-answer, fake apology after fake apology, focus group press statement after statement, and the message is the same. Whatever it is, it isn't my fault and it's not my problem. And that trend, I don't think, has been particularly helpful for our country, do you? I also don't think that trend is particularly helpful for our churches. And that's something that Paul's addressing in the text this morning is a church that was like, you know, I know what's going on, but it's not my circus, not my monkeys. And Paul's going to say, that's not okay. That's not okay among the people of God. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I do want you to turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, if you need to remain seated, please feel free to do so. But as you're able, I'd invite you to stand to honor the, God, the reading of God's Word today. As we've been doing, I want to encourage us to read verses 1 all the way through verse 8 so that we can understand the context of what Paul's talking about here. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 8 this morning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul begins this way. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present." 
in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Would you pray with me? Father, it is our desire to come this morning and to approach your word with sincerity of heart that we may learn truth from you and by those two things to live in a way that is upright before you. We acknowledge that if your spirit is not at work within us, then in our flesh we do not want to know these things, much less do we want to conform to them. So make us humble, Lord, and make us humble so that we might be like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've been going through, we've talked about kind of leading into this chapter. Paul's been dealing with this church here in Corinth that is full of problems. He's trying to sort through the sin that they've been going through. And in chapter 5, he's getting real practical, real specific. He's going to start going through a whole bunch of, of issues that are going on. He's kind of got his checklist and, and to get us ready for that checklist, he's set up these big principles, who the Corinthians are in Christ. He's been dealing with the attitudes that they have towards each other, superiority and the conflicts of personality that they've been going through. And he's been trying to present to them these theological categories for them to then bring into and apply to the specific situations that are going on in the church. And uh, his first one here in chapter five off the bat is quite a doozy. Major sin in the camp has been introduced us to last week. And the Corinthian church is in big trouble because they're having a not-my-problem attitude towards something that is their problem, and it's a big problem. And as Ben walked us through in verses 1 and 2, we saw that sin was sitting there unaddressed in the middle of this church, and a sexual immoral sin of such a kind that it was scandalizing even the Gentiles who heard about it. Ben showed us how there is this sinful attitude that the Corinthians have that goes along with the sin itself that they're harboring, that attitude of arrogance towards their own spiritual superiority. Look, how impressive are we compared to that feller Paul? When in reality, they should have been mourning. They should have been heartbroken at what was happening right there among them. And finally, we looked at how the issue of immorality in general is central to the Christian faith because God's design for human sexuality and marriage and all of that is central to the church's teaching about the gospel, to what God is trying to show the world about himself and about the work of his son. And therefore, this is one of those areas the church cannot and must not ever compromise on or cede one inch, inch of to the culture. We must hold the line on these things, even if our culture goes completely off the rails of divine design and revelation. That's what we looked at last week. So the question then is, what do we do when it becomes evident that we do, in fact, have sin in the camp? Uh, okay, look over there. There's a problem. Now what? Maybe someone should do something about it. Well, that's where Paul's at this week. Well, this is the what should we do about it week. And you probably noticed that part of the punchline 
was already hinted at at the end of verse 2 that we left off last week when Paul says that the one who does these things should be removed from their midst. And as Paul is writing these words and he's laying this out, I am sure no doubt he is reflecting at least in part on God's instruction that was given to the nation of Israel as they were preparing to go in and conquer and settle the promised land. And if you recall, as they were gathered there on that great plain, the law was read to them a second time. And all the principles that God wanted to govern his nation and how they would live civilly and how they would live in their worship before him were once again made clear to the people. There were many themes that were presented there that are collected in the book that we call Deuteronomy in your Old Testament. And one of those themes that runs throughout the book of Deuteronomy is this instruction on the importance of guarding against wickedness and evil becoming entrenched in the land and corrupting the people as a whole, guarding against sin becoming entrenched in the camp. If you take a quick survey through Deuteronomy, you'll notice this over and over in Deuteronomy 17.7, any wickedness that's deserving of capital punishment in any form, particularly false worship, is to be judged swiftly so that you can purge the evil from your midst. Those who reject the authority of the priests to render verdicts on issues according to God's commands after an investigation has been concluded in Deuteronomy 17:12, must be removed from the people so that their evil will be purged from Israel. Those who entice others among them to worship false gods in Deuteronomy 13:5, must be removed from the people so that they will purge the evil from among them. Those who create false accusations against others in Deuteronomy 19:19, 19, 19, or those who kidnap with the purpose of enslaving or to do violence to people. In Deuteronomy 24, 7, over and over you see this refrain. You've got to deal with sin seriously, quickly, decisively, so that it will be purged from your land or else it will fester. And unlike our culture today, when God established his own people and his own nation, he did so with a clear responsibility for the people as a whole to be watchful for sin in the camp. And when they found it, to deal with it. And Paul is helping us to see that God is no less proactive in the church. Now, in Christ, praise God, this looks a little different than it did in Israel. There are no rocks involved, for example. And for this, I think all of us ought to be very thankful. But it is just as serious and sober of a responsibility to watch for and purge sin out of the camp today as it ever has been. And Paul's point, if you want to summarize this whole passage down, it's really quite a simple point he is making here. The church deals with sin in the camp so that we may come to look like who we have been made to be in Christ. That's, that's his big picture. The church deals with sin in the camp so that we will be unhindered in coming to look like who we have already been made to be in Christ. And as you might imagine, the way this plays out in individual situations requires prayer and wisdom and courage and humility and graciousness and faith. And we'll see all those themes in this passage today. So let's join in as Paul moves from having identified sin in the camp and how serious it is last week to how to address the sin that is in the camp this week. And we'll see in our passage that Paul is going to frame that from two different points of references. First, he's going to look at dealing with sin from the perspective of how it affects the individual who is sinning. And then secondly, he's going to talk about how do we deal with sin 
from the perspective of how it affects the church as a, as a whole. So let's begin by looking at how addressing sin is meant to preserve the sinner himself or herself. If you're taking notes this morning, your first point is this, addressing sin preserves the sinner in verses three through five. And in these first three verses, Paul gives us three principles that help us navigate dealing with sin in the camp. And let me just note at the beginning that virtually every principle you're going to see in this passage that applies to how we deal with sin in the camp is, as I've been discovering this week, very sharp and pointy when it comes to dealing with sin in our own hearts as well. And so these are great principles for us to apply to ourselves individually, as well as principles that govern how we approach sin in the camp as a body. And the first principle is this, address sin directly. Address sin directly. Look at verse 3. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul begins very emphatically here. For I on my part, that comes right out and punches you in the Greek. He's saying, hey, this has already been taken care of. Listen up. I've already dealt with this. In contrast with the arrogant response of the Corinthians, who did not want to deal with this sin, who were tolerating it and ignoring it, Paul's like, you know what? Let me tell you what I've already gotten taken care of here. This is how you should have responded. Pay attention because this is the way you should have approached this situation. I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit. He's acknowledging that he's not physically there with them in Corinth, but he is joining them in one spirit on this issue. Now, some of you guys are, are sports fans. You probably understand this concept. Have you ever been watching a sports, what's a, Zags? Let's do Zags. I hear, depending on time of year, I know when, I generally I'm oblivious to when a sports season is, but I know when Zags season is happening around here. How many of you have watched on a television and been one with spirit with the fans who were present in the arena while the Zags were playing? You were united with them in purpose. I saw a few hands, yeah. You were united with them in purpose and intent on the same goal. And Paul is saying something similar to that. It is as though I were right there with you. I'm able to deal with this situation in one spirit with you. We are together on this. The same principles are controlling us both. The same purpose is controlling us both. Even though I can't be there physically with you right now, this is not a remote issue for me. I am present with you in dealing with this situation. And what is that way that he has dealt with this? Well, it says there in verse 3, I have already judged him who has so committed this. Sometimes an accusation needs careful investigation. And sometimes it doesn't. Uh, Paul was able to have pronounced judgment on this man already because there was nothing really that needed to be clarified. What he had done was known to all, confirmed by all, not being denied by the one who had done it. It wasn't as though there was these competing claims that had to be sorted through carefully. There was a sin, open, acknowledged, tolerated, just sitting right there. And Paul says, I've already judged the one who has done this. And you might be thinking, but wait, isn't that bad? Isn't it like one of the whole Christian things that we don't judge one another? Wasn't that like one of Jesus's things that we don't judge one another? Didn't he say that? Well, yes, he did. So let's figure out what's going on here. Did Paul make a mistake here when he judges this man? Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 if you want to follow along. 
And as you're doing so, let me set the stage here by reminding us that there are at least three distinct different ways that this word judge is used and that takes place when we see it in Scripture. First, you could say it this way. There is judging according to a definition, judging according to a definition. This involves comparing something to a reliable standard so that you can call it what it is. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, then our family that actually has a little flock of ducks has learned it is invariably a duck. Judging according to a definition. There's also judging according to a law. And this involves pronouncing a sentence upon someone as a consequence of having violated a law or command. It can be a civil judge rendering a sentence for a crime that was committed, and they can go all the way up to divine judgment upon a person wherein God sends somebody to eternal damnation. It is a person being rendered a sentence according to a law. And then finally, it can refer to judging people in reference to yourself. Judging people in reference to yourself. This involves pronouncing a sentence upon someone. Excuse me, uh, not sentence upon. This involves in uh, uh, pronouncing upon somebody that you are superior to them, because you've compared them to the standard of you and found them wanting. So when we talk about judging, we do need to clarify: are we talking about judging according to a definition, to a law, or to yourself? And let's see what kind of judging Jesus is talking about in Matthew seven. In Matthew seven. Verse 1, Jesus gives us the principle that our culture knows very well. Our, our culture doesn't know a lot of their Bible verses anymore. Right? Most people in our culture don't even remember John 3.16 anymore. But they know that like Jesus talked about love and don't judge one another. Right? Those are the two like key principles our culture remembers from the Bible. And here's one of them. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Okay, close your Bibles. We're done. We're dismissed. Bad Paul. Well, hold on. Listen to the emphasis here in the following verses. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that it is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice the theme? What's the issue Jesus is dealing with here? Jesus is condemning here an attitude of self-righteous judgment, of comparing yourself to another and judging them as inferior to your own glorious excellence. He's not discussing whether or not you can look at something and determine if it is good or bad and make those kind of judgments. How do I know he's not prohibiting this? Look at the very next verse. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You are to judge whether someone is a dangerous spiritual dog or swine, or as uh, Mike Powell put in his notes, Christians judge, judge dogs and hogs. But stop comparing yourself, Jesus says, to others to stroke your self-righteous ego. And so we are to evaluate what is going on in front of us. We are to evaluate its spiritual worth and significance. We are to evaluate its spiritual danger. But stop comparing yourself to people in a self-righteous way. 
And that's borne out in how Paul discusses judging throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he said, Don't judge one another's motives because you can't see them. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 to 3, he says the church should be able to judge all the legal matters even that happen within the church because one day we're going to be judging the whole world and even the angels. In 1 Corinthians 10, 15, unlike motives, we can and should judge words including the words Paul was speaking, because they can be compared to God's standard. But in that same chapter, verse 29, we can't judge the conscience of another man because we don't have the ability to see that either. And so Paul is consistent throughout the book of 1 Corinthians with the teaching of Christ. We are to be constantly judging, to be determining by comparing things to God's definitions and calling them what they are. But we need to be very careful about pronouncing condemnation on a person for what we assume their motives to be, for what we assume their conscience to be operating on, for the things that we can't see or by using ourselves as the standard of righteousness. That's the issue. And so Paul is able to say, I've judged this man already. And that's not a sin for him to say that because what he's looking at is not the man's motives, not the man's conscience, but what the man is doing compared to what God has commanded. And in that light, it's very clear. And so in the church, this should be a place where two things are simultaneously true. We never look down on one another or judge a person's motives or heart based on our assumptions. That is something we need to learn to carefully guard. It's so easy, right? Man, only this kind of person would come to church wearing that. Right? It's petty stuff. It's little stuff. And we have got to train our hearts to say, that's not okay. They didn't handle the situation the way I would. They don't raise their kids the way I would. They don't go to the job that I would. They haven't made the life decisions that I would. We as Christians really have to guard against that kind of judging. Because you don't want to be treated that way by, that way by everybody else here, do you? If this is a church of self-righteously judgmental people, it's a bitter place to be. And too many churches can creep towards this where it's kind of like a neighborhood with a cruel homeowners association and everybody's lawns are perfect, but everybody's miserable. And we don't want our church to look like that. This is a place where love covers. We're not making assumptions about one another. However... Right alongside that truth should also be the truth that the church is one of the places where we are honest with one another about the fruit of our lives that is out in public for others to see. So this, is, this should be the place where you run into the fewest assumptions that people make about you anywhere you go. And it should also be the place where people shoot straighter with you on what actually is going on than you'll find elsewhere. Have you found that often it's, it's the opposite? When something very obviously needs to be addressed, that's the part where like, eh, somebody else will hopefully mention that to them. But when it comes to those things that we should be tolerant of, those differences that are not sin, those things about the heart that we can't see, oh, that, let's pile some judgment on that. We get this exactly opposite so often. Paul was not embarrassed to publicly declare that this immoral man in the church in Corinth was doing something wicked 
because he was. And he wasn't doing it subjectively because of what Paul felt like he was doing. He was doing so objectively because it contradicted the commands of God. And it was the Corinthians, not Paul, that should have been ashamed because they were covering the situation up and not dealing with it, even as it had become gossip widely known. So a couple lessons here for us. First is some things are nuanced and some are not. (laughs) Some things are nuanced and some are not. There are times when it takes a lot of work to get down to what's going on in a situation. Sometimes charges are made or circulate or accusations have circulated and those accusations are not obviously corroborated by the facts. And the church is not to, must not jump to hasty conclusions. This should be a place where when things are spoken, they are carefully inquired into. Unlike our culture that has that always believe the victim unless they disagree with you politically vibe. The church is not to be like that. It should be a model of actual due process. Just like in the Old Testament. Yes, you must decisively purge the evil from among you. But one of the things you'll notice in all those cases that I discussed is it always emphasizes after a careful search has been made. After the facts have been determined. We do not want to rush into anything as a church because it feels emotionally right or there's social pressure. Sometimes things are nuanced and they require time and prayer and patience to search them out and see what is really going on. However, in many cases, there's not a lot of mystery. In many cases, there's not a lot of mystery. Outbursts of anger are outbursts of anger. If you see somebody having an outburst of anger, well, what's the context here? What's the nuance here? There is no context that justifies a sinful outburst of anger. Sinful speech is sinful speech. Well, maybe English isn't their native language. Adultery is adultery. Lying is lying. Many times our sin doesn't give us anywhere to hide. There's nothing that needs to be understood to make the determination was this righteous or not there may be a thousand facts that need to be understood for how to work through that situation and how healing and restoration can take place but was this right or was this wrong is often lying right there on the surface when there is no potential righteous explanation for something then you can skip past the extensive investigation part and simply deal with what you're dealing with that's true in the church as paul is demonstrating There's no possible good explanation for this incestuous relationship. That's true in our lives. And I think perhaps in our culture, we have become so good at excusing it, nuancing the sins of other people if we like them, right? If we don't like them, then we'll just judge them no matter what they do or say. But if we like somebody, we're so good at excusing their sin and nuancing it because we have gotten so good in our own hearts at excusing our own sin and nuancing to our own conscience what is just black and white. We need to deal directly with our own sin first because a church that will not judge is a church that cannot endure. Our second lesson here, a church that will not judge is a church that cannot endure. Paul's addressing this issue with the Corinthians because the issue of unaddressed sin in the camp is destroying their gospel witness from without, right? They have a scandalous reputation even among the Gentiles because of this. And as we're going to see later in this passage, it's in danger of rotting out their gospel living from within. A church that is not dealing with sin in the camp is a church that will soon be a church in name only 
and likely not even that for long. When there is sin in the camp, whether that is our own heart, our families, our church, it should be addressed directly. And secondly, it should be addressed with the right authority. Address sin authoritatively. Look at verse 4 with me. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now notice that Paul is able to make this judgment from a distance based on these undisputed facts, but he's not making his judgment based on his own authority. He's able to make this determination clearly, but he's not taking for himself the authority to to decide what is right or wrong. He's not saying, you know, I've compared this guy to my lifestyle and he's been found wanting. The reason we pursue discipline in the church for sin is that we have a king over all of us who has given a standard to all of us that governs our fellowship together with one another. We are not the standards that we must compare others to. And notice for Paul, this standard, this authority, the reason, the, the power behind his discipline that he's initiating here is all about Jesus. The judgment that had been made regarding sin that violated the clear commands of Jesus was now going to be addressed, did you see that? In the name of our Lord Jesus, and that word Lord there is key, and in the power of our Lord, there it is again, Jesus. That's the authority that oversees this entire undertaking. And with those two bookends in place, Paul's able to fill in the other people involved here. There's the whole church in Corinth, notice. He says, when you are all publicly assembled, this has become a public sin that is a public scandal. It will be dealt with and addressed then in a public way. And with the apostolic authority of Paul. Paul adds his support and apostolic position here as well. Though he's not with them in person, he is going to be with them in spirit in making this pronouncement. And today, this would be reflected in the fact that, as Christ instructed in Matthew 18, when church discipline reaches the stage of being addressed publicly, it comes underneath and out of the authority and oversight of the elders, the overseers of the church. Church discipline, as a lesson here, is to be understood always as a public extension of Christ's discipline. Church discipline is an extension of Christ's discipline. Christ is in the business of purifying his bride and doing so with the water of the word and by the power of his spirit. And the church has been called to be a participant in that process. And that is why we must walk through any situation of discipline with fear and trembling. Because we aren't the good old boys dealing with that whippersnapper. We are all sinners by the grace of God being conformed into the image of Christ. And when sin in the camp rises to the level that it needs to be addressed at the level of the church body, we are being used in a process that is reflecting Christ's desire to discipline his children. And it must be done his way, in his name, by his power, for his purposes. It cannot be about us. And secondly, dealing with sin should always be in his name and through his power because we're not capable of changing even our own hearts. How many of you have run into a brick wall dealing with your own sin and had to go to God and beg him, God, would you change my heart? I've tried just being more betterer and it doesn't work. 
I need you to be gracious to me, the sinner. And if we can't change even our own hearts, how much less are congregations able to change the heart of anyone else? When we approach dealing with sin, we must cast ourselves upon the grace of God that in him, for him, and by his power, we might see sin overcome. Discipline is always a serious and initially unpleasant affair, but it is carried out in hope. Even as Hebrews 12:11 reminded us, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. And all God's children said, amen. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, there's a key, not hurt by it, trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so even in a situation as extreme as this gross immorality here, the ultimate motive for discipline always included love for the one being disciplined. Address sin thirdly this morning in our subpoint here lovingly in verse 5 address sin lovingly i have decided paul says to deliver such a one to satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our lord jesus that's an eye-opening verse isn't it which is more dangerous being ravaged by satan himself or being comfortably complacent in your sin right this verse answers that question Paul considers it more dangerous to allow a man to stay complacent in his sin than to subject him to the potential ravages of Satan himself. Yikes. This is that last step in the process of church discipline that uh, is outlined for us by our Savior in Matthew 18. We don't have time to go into it in great detail. Uh, Ben addressed this a number of weeks ago. But this is where addressing sin has gone from something that happens in private, brother to brother, and there's no repentance. And then it has gone to the level of bringing in witnesses to confirm that the judgment that's been made is correct, and there's no repentance. And it goes to the level of being made known to the church, and there is no repentance. And then it goes to the level of that person being put out of the church, of fellowship with the people of God being broken. And Paul understands that in this case, the sin has been discovered has been confirmed and is not being challenged, has been made known publicly at the level of the church and indeed beyond. And there is still no repentance for the sin. And so Paul is jumping straight to the step that the church in Corinth should have already taken. And it's led to a lot of speculation about what's going on here in this whole handing over to Satan bit. So let's break that down briefly. Is Paul turning this guy over for a satanic assassination? I've made a deal. I'm meeting Satan at six o'clock. I'm handing this dude over so that Satan can destroy his flesh and kill him. No, no, that's not what's going on here. Uh, If so, that would be the only instance of this happening in all of scripture and an odd one to have not explained any further. Uh, That would be terrifying. Paul's purpose explicitly in this passage, notice, is not this man's demise. His purpose, the so that part of this verse is his salvation. The goal here is not to take him out. The goal here is to win him back. So then what does it mean? Well, this phrase handed over to Satan is used one other place in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 1.20 when 
Paul writes to Timothy and describes these two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And in that case, as well as this case, it is a phrase that refers to that final step of church discipline when a person has been put out of fellowship from the church. And so in what sense is that handing them over to Satan? Well, I think there's at least two main aspects of this handing over. Church is in many ways an embassy of heaven, isn't it? This is a local gathering of heavenly citizens worshiping a heavenly king. And that comes with certain blessings and protections. To be excluded from the heavenly assembly, from the heavenly embassy, if you will, is to be called to live back out there in the kingdom of darkness. It is not to say you are of the kingdom of darkness, but it is to say this is no longer the place for you to fellowship. The blessings that are here are no longer rightly enjoyed by you because you refuse to take ownership of your king. Therefore, you don't get to enjoy the blessings of his family. And so you're back underneath the reign, if you will, of Satan in his domain. And that brings with it increased exposure to Satan, who scripture says prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Is this because we've determined that this person is a bad guy and therefore we're going to treat him like an enemy? Well, no, of course not. Second Thessalonians three fourteen to 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonish him as a brother. Is this to be done harshly? No, again, Galatians 6, 1. Each one of you looking to yourself so you not be tempted are to, if you catch somebody in a trespass, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The goal of putting someone out of fellowship with the church when their unrepentant sin in the camp is that the person would find it dark and disturbing to be suddenly thrust back among the ruins of what they were saved from and that they would come running back to Christ. And if they end up loving the darkness instead, it reveals that they were never of us in the first place. Paul's purpose is to see this grossly sinful man, and it is a gross sin, be saved, not destroyed. The hardness of his heart, however, has brought him to this point of severe discipline, dangerous discipline, and necessary discipline, because this step is much more gracious to him than to allow him to remain as he is couple lessons here. All discipline should be for the good of the one being disciplined. An extremely important principle across the board. In a court of law, sometimes sentences are just punitive, right? Not, not every time a judge says, and here's what your sentence is it, because I think this is the best way to help you develop some good character. Right? A lot of, a lot of legal sentences are just punishments for crimes, that is not what happens in the family of God. It should, be not, it should not be what happens in our families either, whether as parents or others with positions of influence. We discipline because God disciplines. The purpose is always just that, discipline. Actions, consequences, words designed to forge those things that are of eternal value and to warn away from wickedness. That's the purpose We're celebrating Mother's Day today. That's why we picked this tender text. (laughs) 
And I know that some did not have earthly mothers who fulfilled this role, but many of us did. And I definitely can bear testimony to the fact that I was one who was disciplined righteously and rather frequently, I might add, by a godly mother. And I'm very thankful for her that she was willing to deal with my sin directly and not let me win ever because she loved me and cared for my soul. I'm thankful for my wife and the way that she disciplines our children and raises them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm thankful for godly women in this church, many of whom have been a motherly influence in my life and to others because let's face it, sometimes our earthly mothers don't understand these things, have not submitted themselves to these things. But in the church, I'm grateful that there are mothers for all. There are godly women here who will share wisdom and indeed even sometimes correction with others. Discipline is for our good. It is to be done in hope. It is to be done in love for the good of the one being disciplined, even when they seem hopeless and unlovable. Secondly, it's dangerous out there. It's dangerous out there. The only thing more terrifying than falling into the hands of the living Satan is to fall into the hands of the living God. It is the most terrifying thing in the universe to consider facing a perfect holy judge that we have never found our peace with through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, it is better for somebody who is consistently, unrepentantly acting like they have no relationship with Christ to be put out from the church for a time that they might be tested, that even if it would be God's will, their flesh would be destroyed so that they would realize what have I done and run back to Christ than to let somebody think I'm fine. Let somebody think that by going to church, they've purchased fire insurance against hell. And then one day wake up in heaven and realize that's not how it works. But it's dangerous out there. Brothers and sisters, do not let us take our sin lightly. Deal with it quickly. It is no small thing to be handed over to Satan and to the discipline of a stern father and of an unkind enemy. How serious must our sin be if such discipline as outlined in this verse is best for the unrepentant sinner? This is not just about the sinner. It's also about the rest of the camp. And there's absolutely no way we're going to get to talk about that this morning. So we will get to that next week. I am up next week, so I have one week to repent from my own sin. And we will try to correct that then. You may be wondering, what about people that come and visit our church? What about people that I know in the world that aren't Christians and there's sin going on in their lives? I want to just clarify that what we were talking about this morning is not what's happening out there. It's about what's happening in here. Paul is specifically addressing those who profess the name of Christ as part of a church that identifies with the name of Christ and who against the name of Christ are walking in ongoing unrepentant sin. He's going to clarify next week what our relationship is to sin in the world. I hope he's going to clarify that next week. <laughs> we're going to try to get there. Uh, but that is what he is talking about is sin in our midst. And this morning, as we've looked at the effect of sin on an individual and for their good, 
I hope that will encourage, particularly on this Mother's Day, those of us that have been entrusted with children, that we would not, oh, it's just a phase them to the ruin of their souls. That we would not, I'm just too tired to deal with this them to allow sin to fester. That we would love them enough to call them to repentance so that they might know the joy of walking in obedience and not have to know the bitter fruits of sin in their lives. How many of us wish we'd had a parent that had been faithful to us and we have the scars to prove it. So with that, let me invite the music team to come up. This song would have fit even more perfectly at the end of my prepared notes, Uh, but it's a good one. So as you're able, would you stand and let's close in song this morning.